Well, to talk about the fall, we need to make sure we're aware of the setting back in chapter 2. And if uh, you'll pardon me, I'd like to take just a personal note of rejoicing because uh, Sandy and I were you, you were, you celebrated with us the fact that while we're here, we had our 50th anniversary. And uh, you made it feel very, even more special to us. And uh, you, you've been with us at, for another milestone. Uh, last weekend, we, Sandy and I were away for the wedding of our oldest grandson. Now, I mean, when your oldest child gets married, that's one thing. But we're way too young to have a grandson getting married. But, but we did. But it was, it was something of a Genesis 2 moment. That's why I thought about this. To see the delight in the eyes of a young man as his bride comes down the aisle, and uh, there were times when he just lifted her up and hugged her, and the joy was overwhelming. Just like Adam, you know, when the Lord brought the woman to him. I mean, the, the, the essence of the poem was, wow! Lord, I mean, you've done some great things, but this is the tops. Uh, and he celebrated and uh, it was my son. This is part of the joy that I had. My own son was the one who actually gave the homily before the wedding. So it was a very Christ-centered wedding and a blessing for our family. And he used Genesis uh, as the basis of his uh, comments to the, to the congregation. Well, here you have, as Duane has so capably outline to you. And you, and if you've missed the last two messages, let me encourage you to listen to them on, um, on tape. Just go back through the website and listen to them. Although I have to say, I, I listened to his sermon last week, and he said I was going to tell you this morning about Brazil. I don't know if you picked that up. I have no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> I have My thought is that either... The staff is trying to convince me that I'm senile and I'm losing and I'm losing my short-term memory, or I am losing my short-term memory. <laughs> but I was—I have to be honest and say I was quite disappointed with Dwayne because I thought we'd agreed that he was going to go on the internet and flash up your Google Earth and uh, hone down and show you exactly where the Garden of Eden was. I mean, that's really what the text is all about. And he disappointed me terribly. See, I can rag on him because he's away this weekend. <laughs> but that raises a, a very significant point. And he's made both times he's spoken to you. I, I want to reaffirm that. And that is, we are not trying to force the Bible to answer questions that it really wasn't designed to answer. And so uh, you, you could have a pastor stand up and, and kind of go through all sorts of uh, efforts to try to figure out exactly how the creation took place. Or where was the Garden of Eden? Or all of these questions that just aren't answered by the Bible. Let the Bible just tell its own story. And I'm personally convinced that when the time comes when we can ask all those questions, we will find that the Bible is so unbelievably accurate, we had no idea 
We had no idea. Because, but in fact, it's here to tell us not all these scientific issues. Let the scientists pursue them. And when they finally settle the question, it'll all, it'll all work out. I'm satisfied with that. And uh, so you might be compiling a list somewhere in your computer that says, questions I'd like to ask Jesus someday. And these are the kinds of questions, I guess he'll have seminars in which he can explain all those kinds of things. I suspect, I suspect when the time comes, we really won't want to need to ask them anyway. I say that because we're going to add about 15 questions to that list this morning. There's just a lot that is a puzzle about chapter, tw- chapter 3 of Genesis, and I'm not going to try to answer them because you can't answer them from the Bible. Just let, let, the, let the story speak to us. And that's what I'm going to try to do. My one goal this morning is simply to go through the story with you and uh, just read it and make sure that we've observed carefully what's, what's here because it will give us plenty to think about. And I know, in fact, that if you're part of the home groups, which I hope you are, you've already kind of considered this lesson. And it's wonderful that we're kind of going in sort of parallel between uh, what we're studying here and the and the home groups, hopefully they reinforce one another along with some of your own, some of your own thinking. Okay, let's go back then and uh, look in your, I hope you have a, an open Bible because what we have is man and the woman standing together, right? It's very clear when God created man in his own image, it wasn't man the male, it was, it was male and female, created in the image of God. And in fact, the two who become one is really, a, in a sense, a more complete reflection of the image of God than just the individual. For the God whom we worship is, as we learn later, God who is three and yet one. And so here they are standing together. God places them in a paradise... And in particular, look at verse 8. I'm back in chapter 2 now. We need to get this kind of context. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life. I want to come back to that. Don't overlook that, because what gets our attention, of course, is also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then jump to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then we're given the greater detail of how God actually creates the woman and brings her to him and so forth. And one of those questions you can't answer is how long did all of this, how long did all of this take? But but the, the story picks up with chapter 3 that Sarah read to, to you a few minutes ago. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast 
of the field that the Lord God had made. Wait a minute. Clearly this serpent uh, is the entry of evil into this whole uh, um, scene of paradise where everything was very good. Where, where did this Satan serpent come from? Well, we're not, that's, again, one of those unanswered questions. And is it, in fact, a snake? Um, well, it's not like any snake we know about. And, in fact, later on, Satan is called that old serpent. And so I'm not going to try to interpret it, but you'll hear me sometimes talk about the serpent and sometimes talk about Satan, and I'm talking about the same the same, the same person. At least it tells us that evil is not eternal. You know, one of the, one of the stories that the people who, for whom the Bible was written, uh, one of their stories was the Persian myth that said it's, still, it's part of, I think it's Zoroastrianism still, that would say good and evil exist side by side all, for all eternity. In other words, there's no hope that good will ever triumph. Because evil will always reappear in one form or another. This says, no, no, in some sense that we don't understand, there's one eternal, and that's God, who is good. But at some point, he allowed evil to begin from one of those, things, one of those beings that he created. This, this beast of the field called the serpent. And he said to the woman, I'm just going to read through, this, through the story, so please follow in your Bibles, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which is kind of a neutral question. But he's trying to get the woman engaged in conversation. And at least in terms of communication, uh, I think this is what you call an open question. What I mean is there are open questions and closed questions that an open question is something that invites conversation. Uh, you'll get this every time you pick up the phone and somebody's going to try to sell you something, and you know it's coming, don't you? And uh, they'll say, what do you think of the weather? Or are you having a nice day? Or something that's going to try to get you to, to talk because they want you to have conversation with them. And once they can get you talking, then they know they can go on to peddle whatever it is that they want you to, to, uh, to buy. A closed question, on the other hand, is just, you know, nice day today, isn't it? And you can say, yeah. And you've answered the, you've answered the question. Well, the serpent is trying to get this woman to, to talk with him. And he asked a, what would seem to be a harmless, harmless question. And the woman said to the serpent, I'm reading verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Now, this is interesting. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, is that what God had said? Let's think together. Is that what God had said? Well, no. He just said, don't eat of it. So we wonder what's, what's going on. But verse 4 is the key, the key to, to notice. But the serpent said to the woman... You will, what? Not surely die. 
Now, folks, the mask is off. What had God said in chapter 2? This is why it was so important that we start there. The day that you eat of it, what? You shall surely die. And what does the serpent says say in verse 4? You shall not surely die. Folks, this is no little fairy tale of a naked woman playing with an apple. There are all the various ways that this is, this is communicated. I mean, we are down to absolute raw obedience or lack of obedience. And isn't that what sin is? Will you do what God says? And if you say no, that's sin. Nothing subtle here. It is the word of the serpent or the word of God. Right? And the fact of the matter is Eve may have been innocent, but she was not stupid. This is a woman created to be like God. And I wondered, this is one of those speculative kinds of questions, what was the man, what were the man and the woman like, hot out of the oven, (laughs) newly created by God? I have to think human beings created or had a capacity for intelligence, for creativity, for insight that we have no idea of. What is it we're using some tiny little fraction of our brains? I don't know. I don't want to get off into that. These are questions I can't answer. But, But the woman was faced with a question. And there's nothing subtle about it. God said, the day that you eat of this, you shall die. And now the serpent comes and says exactly the opposite. You shall not die. Now the question is, which way are you going to go? It really does come down to that. Life's questions and and decisions are not always that that simple. I know that. You know that. But here it is as it's displayed for us. Will you listen to the word of God or will you listen to the word of Satan? The choice is yours. And in fact, the serpent goes on and maligns God. Keep reading in the text. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, folks, even more of the, of the, of the deceiver is revealed here. Because Adam and Eve are like God, aren't they? They've been made in the likeness of God. And so Satan is now offering to the woman what she already has. And this is, in fact, the lie of Satan, to offer you what is already yours. I I think of the temptation of Jesus. And and there is a significant parallel between this temptation and the temptation of Jesus. But one of the temptations, remember, was the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And said, "These I will give these to you if you fall down and worship me. Wait a minute. Did Satan have the kingdom to offer Jesus? No. He's a liar. 
And whatever particle of truth may be included in anything you hear from the voice of the devil, be assured that underneath of it is a lie, because he in his fundamental character is a liar. Satan is no joke. Again, there's so much about this that we don't comprehend. But uh, in fact, we're coming up on Halloween, and everybody loves to play witches and demons and be as evil and nasty as they can. Why? Because underneath they really think it's all a joke after all. Let's scare ourselves to death. Let's play at demonic powers and witches because we know it's not true. Well, I'm afraid it is. And here is the very face of evil with the serpent saying, God is wrong. And not only that, but he, he's keeping you from, from really living. I, I wish I could remember where I read this, but it sort of has stuck with me from some years ago. There was, I think it was a woman who wrote a book and, about the temptation, interestingly enough. And the first thing she did was say, we know it can't be true. This is just a myth. But then she proceeded to give about the best explanation of the temptation I think I've ever read. But from a humanist perspective, but she, she, because she used these categories to wrestle with what it is to be human. And she said, you know, that Eve had to, had to say no to God. She had to make the decision to sin in order to be human. That's what it is to be human, to make a decision, to exercise your free will. And that really caused me to think, well, it is true that you have to exercise your personal choice. That's part of what it is to be human. But can't we say that it was just as much a choice to obey God as a choice to disobey God? So there was a certain element of a test here. But the man and the woman could have been just as fully human, more so, in fact, by choosing to obey God than choosing not to obey God. But the temptation is, wouldn't you like to be like God on your own? Wouldn't you like to live autonomously? Freedom! Freedom! That's what life is all about. And you've got to see from this picture, yeah. And in just a moment, we're going to see how the whole thing unravels. You already know the story. But the freedom, it seems to me, I picture as the, the astronaut, you know, up in space tethered to the spaceship. I mean, that spaceship is restricting him. All he has to do is cut the tether and he's free, right? Sure he is. And it's suicide. And that's precisely what we witness here. The woman chooses freedom, autonomy. I want to be like God and... It, in the sense that I will make my decisions apart from God. I will, I will make decisions on my terms. And as a result, everything falls apart. Well, let's keep reading. So when the woman, verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. 
She took of its fruit and ate. And by the way, it's interesting that there's, notice it was good for food, uh, pleasant to the eyes, desired to make one wise, because there are three categories in the New Testament talk about the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And, and in a sense, all of this reappears because, you know, we have the whole story now. And in fact, Jesus, who is called the second Adam, that's very important, which we're not going to talk about any more than that, but he's called the second Adam. He goes through how many temptations? Remember? Three. Very much in a parallel here. Jesus accomplished what Adam and failed to do. Jesus, the second Adam, overcame Satan, resisted the temptation, and banished him. Speaking of Adam, where has he been in all of this? One way to read the text, she took some of its fruit and ate, and she gave some also to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Is he standing right there the whole time? Abdicating? As we men tend to do far too often. Letting his wife do the talking. Interestingly, it's not until the man has partaken that things begin to happen. And in fact, it is the man who's held accountable for the decision that is made. Now, you know, all of these things are sort of seminal that grow into something more. And, and I wonder if at the very least, it does say that from the beginning, the man if in the household is called to be the spiritual head. Now, we're going to see how that unravels in just a moment. But men, I want to say to you, either married men or those who are contemplating marriage, If you will not take responsibility to be the head of your household spiritually, it won't happen. I'm just saying this is a practical observer of one who's watched families for 30-some years now. When it's the wife, it's always going to be, well, I I will do the best I can and I hope I can influence my children. But it's the husband who has to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And when, when men, you are willing to take your responsibility and, and the godly leadership that I think you're called to, you, you have real expectation to see God bless you as a family and raise up your children to walk in the faith. Well, Adam does partake. And now things, and really we can go through this fairly quickly, as sad as it is. There's so much that we could comment on here, but just read through, starting with verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they felt shame. So now into this beautiful scene that we've been describing all along comes guilt and shame. Man within himself becomes conflicted. And I I think the nakedness, though, was not that they were ashamed to be naked with each other. It was a shame that they knew God was coming 
and they were ashamed to be in the presence of God and naked. And so they did this pitiful attempt and sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the voice, excuse me, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Oh, friends, this is where we should weep. The most beautiful thing of all was man created to be in communion with God. And the man and his wife open before God. They were one flesh, but in the presence of God, and it was a place of joy and fulfillment. This is true humanity, and now they hide from God. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Does that mean God didn't know where they were? Of course not. This begins a a pattern that you'll see all through the rest of Scripture. It is always God seeking the sinner, never the other way around. It is not within the heart of fallen man to want God anymore. He wants to run from God. He wants to, he's ashamed. He's guilty. But God, instead of saying, you know, coming down with a heavy hand and smashing, he says, Adam, where are you? Open arms. Even the fallen, sinful, broken, rebellious man is welcomed by God, and he really invites him to repent. Where are you? And he said, verse 10, I'm reading, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, you remember we talked a few minutes ago about open questions and closed questions. This is what you call a closed question. Adam, did you eat of the tree? And what's the answer to be? Think about it. Yes or no. That's all he wants. Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And instead of a yes or no, what does he get? A conversation. And not only a conversation, but he puts the blame on his wife. You see, paradise unravels one more step. In fact, he not only puts the blame on his wife, he said, the woman you gave me. Now, is this a picture of where we are? Sadly, you see this... First of all, the sense of, of man within himself, the man and the woman feeling shame and guilt. And then awareness that now the, the, there's a wall between them and God and they, they try to hide. And even the man and the woman now begin to push each other apart. And the woman, of course, verse 12, the man said, the woman you, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then the curse is pronounced, really in the reverse order, that is Satan and then the woman and then the man. Let me just read through this. It's not all part of the printed text. 
The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. See, this is a, the puzzle to me. It's speaking of a, of a snake, and yet it's speaking also of Satan. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's really the picture of the snake coming and grabbing hold of the foot. But the man, the, the seed of the woman, stomping down on the head of the serpent. And this is taken as really the first promise of the gospel. And appropriately so. You know, it has to, be, has to be unpacked as we go along. But someone who comes from the woman will ultimately destroy this serpent after having done much harm and much destruction. And then he speaks to the woman in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, the word desire there could be your, uh, it, it, it's really a word of aggression. That is this beautiful harmony that God created of a man and a woman being one now becomes competition. And there's war between the man and the woman. And in the end, the man will dominate the woman. This is not even close to the picture that we have of the man and woman standing side by side as, cre as it was to be in creation. And isn't that the case? The women, you know, we are so blessed in our Western world and, and with all due respect to some of the ardent uh, feminists, I wish they'd go into the Africa somewhere or the rest of the Muslim world and, and try to bring about some reforms because there women are still pieces of property, meat, baby factories, and that's it, girls to be sold off for whatever they can do. Oh, what a picture of the fall. It's so tragic. I remember doing a, a seminar uh, my one experience of doing a marriage seminar in Africa among tribal people, this was amazing. Who, was, who am I to be there? But one of the men came up and said, because we were talking about really what, what, what the Bible's picture of, of the home was to be like. And the man said, I don't know my wife's name. Just his woman. There to have his babies and take care of his house. And it happens because physically the man typically can dominate the woman. And this is the sad world in which, in which we have. In fact, women now bear children in much pain, as it says. In pain you shall bring forth children. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat of, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that should bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Wayne pointed out to you 
last week that work is a good thing. It's part of how we are created. We, we, we don't do well if we're not working. But to work as a toil, as something that is all, always working harder and never quite catching up, the constant, constant, constant pressure of providing for family and unemployment, and we experience it this here in one way, you know, in another part of the world in a different way. This is a result of the curse. This is the world in which we live. What a mess. Well, I'm not telling you anything new, am I? This is the world that we are now living in. Now, understand, there, however, the biblical understanding of human nature is it's so important. The Bible does not say that we are evil. The Bible does not say everything about men and women is bad. That's the beautiful parallel, you see. We are created in the image of God. That is not lost. We are created but fallen. And so there is still beauty. There is still creativity. There is still spirituality. But it's all getting turned on its head and used selfishly. And destructively, so often, we're going to take one more week. We have to walk through the muck. This is an ongoing part of the story, for sure, both being created in the image of God, but also the fallenness. But the story of Noah, uh, contrary to being, a, 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 again, a sweet little kid's story about animals going into an ark, it's really a story of where sin takes us. So we'll get it, you know, that, that's not over. But let me wrap up by going back to where we started and just ask you the question. When God said, in the day that you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Was that true? And I hope after what I've said, you'll agree with me that it's got to be true. If God said it, it's true. Which may cause us to rethink what we mean when we say death. Because as a matter of fact, that moment when Adam and Eve knew that they could no longer look God in the face, whatever that actually well, that experience was like, when they had to run away from God, that that communion was broken, they died. And because of that death, all the other stuff starts to happen. Until in the end, you do return to dust. But death in its very essence, friends, is, is to be away from God. To have lost that connection, that communion. Don't forget there was a second tree right in the middle of the garden. It was called the tree of life. And, and listening to Dwayne's sermon last week, I, I know he said that 
the common understanding of the tree of life is that it was there as sort of a reward. If Adam and Eve had passed the test, they would start to eat of the tree of life. And I would respectfully disagree. God said, you can eat of every tree of the garden except for that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it seems to me that tree of life represented the ongoing communion with God. The man and the woman were enjoying. So they were eating of the tree of life till the fall. And the purpose of, of excluding Adam and Eve from the garden, remember when we read at the end, was that they no longer could eat of the tree of life because they can't eat of the tree of life in this fallen fallen condition. And this really points the way to the good news. This is where I want to end. This is really a downer sermon. (laughs) But when you open the whole Bible, you come to the book of Revelation. And one of the churches, the church of Ephesus, when Jesus is speaking to the church, he says, to you who overcome, I will give the tree of life. See, this is where we say the Bible hangs together, the whole of Scripture. We start with the tree of life, and where does the Bible end? With the tree of life. But whereas originally we gave up the right to the tree of life, Jesus gives it back. And the very last two chapters of the Bible are the holy city that comes down out of heaven where the very presence of Jesus in the midst. That's what was lost in the garden. And what do you find? Chapter 22, and I'll read it in just a moment as we get ready for the communion. You find tree of life billowing it with all of its fruit for the healing of the nations. And I, I just want to tell you, friends, we have blown it. Big time. And I don't think we even know the half of it. Those, those sins that, that are horrific to us, the things about ourselves that we, that we know are wrong and evil, I think that's just a little piece of what God must see in terms of the very depths of the rebellion of our hearts. But he nevertheless says, where are you? And in Jesus, the bread of life, he gives back to us what we've thrown away. That's the gospel. And I, I, I really do believe the communion that we're going to celebrate now is, is like a sort of a, well, it's kind of like those animal skins that God provided for Adam and Eve. That wasn't the full answer, was it? But it kind of kept them for the time being. <laughs> and, and until we partake in the fullest sense of the tree of life, take this communion this morning and say, this, this is a foretaste. This is, this is a little reminder that God gives me life even when I've thrown it away, even when I've messed up, even when I've destroyed all the good things he's given me. Because it takes a while to put your life back together again, but it's got to start where it, where it began, and that is with the breaking of the fellowship with God. So I invite you this morning to come and eat and drink of this kind of picture of the bread of life, of the tree of life,
We are needy people. But through Jesus, we can begin to be whole again. And by faith, as you come, you are saying, I believe, first of all, yeah, I need this. I'm one of the ones. I am like Adam and Eve. I'm not going to laugh at that story. Sure, I don't understand a lot about it, but that's me. I have defied what God has told me to do. And I don't understand why. God came looking for me with open arms and welcomed me back. And through him, I can eat again of the tree of life. There'll be a fullness of experience yet to come. But even now, I have a taste through Jesus of that new life. And I want to partake of that. I want to eat that and drink that. Come to the communion with that. Let's pray.